Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 39 of Hypnosis Weekly. friends and a very very warm welcome back to hypnosis weekly once again in my own highly biased opinion i think i have a show filled with a wop bubba loop a wop bamboo lined up for you today thanks to little richard for the inspiration this week in a short while i'll be sharing with you an interview with my guest trevor sylvester then i'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories examining the media where hypnosis is featured i'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the way hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Trevor Sylvester. We shall be exploring the cognitive hypnotherapy approach of Trevor's own Quest Institute. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the Hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Trevor Sylvester to Hypnosis Weekly. Trevor founded the Quest Institute, a hypnotherapy training school that's prominent here in the UK, and also founded their Cognitive Hypnotherapy Approach, and is also author of five books, one of which I watched him chatting about on BBC Breakfast News a while back. I first encountered Trevor through professional circles a number of years ago. I also attended a supervision class that he ran and tutored me in a few years back and got a sense of how he teaches, presents and the sort of man he is, all of which I found to be highly agreeable. I've also got a lot of inspiration from Trevor, the way he runs his business and those that I meet who have studied with him speak very highly and fondly of him his approach as well, and the Quest Institute in general, and we'll get to hear more about his cognitive hypnotherapy approach later on in today's show. For now though, get comfy my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview with Trevor Sylvester. So as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome the one and only Mr. Trevor Sylvester to Hypnosis Weekly. Trevor, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Trevor, let's roll our sleeves up, get stuck straight in. Tell us a little bit, how did you get into this field? You know, tell us a little bit about your background and how you arrived at where you are now. Sure. OK, well, um, I was a police officer for, um, for 18 years in total. Right. And probably for the last 10 years or so, I was pretty lost. I knew I didn't want to be in it, but I didn't know what else to do. Mm. And I was um, I was married to kids, not very not feeling very much flexibility in my choices at that particular time. And I happened to um, to go to Hendon training school as an instructor and absolutely loved it. And it was a real golden time there because they were they were investing heavily in the skills of the trainers. Mm. And part of that was workplace counseling because it was an 18 week intensive residential course and people were falling like flies you know with all kinds of issues yeah and i i just really i just really got fascinated by people's problems but then i got frustrated because counseling didn't it seemed to explain the problem to them but didn't seem to help them particularly with solving it Mm. so i started looking around for other things that i could do and (laughs) actually what by pure luck and this is sometimes this is what i think people have to look out for sometimes the universe just provides 
Mm. I was in a toilet cubicle at Hendon, and the, <laughs> a police review magazine opened to the classified page at the back, and there was a course for hypnotherapy. Right. And I thought, that's it, because by that stage, I was um, I was a single parent at weekends. I, was, I had my kids every weekend. So going on training courses was really difficult for me. And this one was a kind of a mentoring distance learning thing. Yeah. Uh, and so that got me started. And then I tripped over NLP because of a colleague at work. Um, that just blew my mind. Yeah. And it was just like finding your thing. You know, it was, it was like the thing I'd always been wanting to, to discover that was mine. Yeah. And I, I kind of arrived at it and thought, well, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I spent three years whilst at a Hendon building up a practice in the evenings. I worked four evenings a week after work, Saturday mornings. And then after three years, I left the police and, and launched as a, as a therapist, you know, with a full-time practice. Yeah, yeah. And um, how, long had you, how long had you been working before you set up what is, you know, a really prominent, highly successful training school and college? And uh, Thank you. Thank, um, it was, let's see, I was practicing for three years. I left for two. And a, a year after that, so six years, after six years, um, I met my wife, Rebecca, at training school. Uh, right. Just leaving, as luck would have it. Yeah. Um, and I was practicing for two years after I'd left, and it, and it just felt a little bit accidental. You know, you're waiting for the phone to ring, to for people to book up. I had all of these years' experience as a trainer, and I was being brought in to run segments of other people's training courses. Yeah. And it was really frustrating because it was they were mainly traditional syllabuses that I didn't really agree with. So I just wanted to train, you know, my ideas. So yeah. Bex and I one day were in a coffee shop and we said, well, you know, why don't we come in together and work together? And Bex had left the police by then as well, wasn't happy doing what she was doing. And so over a cup of coffee, we decided to found Quest. Lovely. Lovely. I, uh, yeah, I love hearing that. And, you know, um, for anybody listening, I have, you know, Trevor, Tr you know, I, I'm guessing that most people are listening are already picking up on, you know, what an agreeable manner you have. And certainly I learned a lot from from the, the brief brief time I've spent training with you myself um, with regards to to your manner and the way in which you present information. And it's nice. You know, I, I learned to chill out a bit more with my training. You know, I was always quite, quite manic and wanting to force myself upon my students and um, and thought, you know, hey, relax a bit. You know, think, think Trevor. Oh, bless you. Be, be Trevor. Um, so tell, let, let's let's get into some, some nuts and bolts then. Um, um, how, how do you define hypnosis, Trevor? How did you arrive at that definition? And, you know, how do you explain hypnosis either to your clients or, or other people? You know, if, you, if you're stuck in the, in the, if you've been cornered in the kitchen at parties and someone asks you what it's all about. Huh. Yeah, well, I, I generally don't ever tell people what I do. <laughs> because Why? I've been gone. But, um it was a bit of a journey because the first course that I took, um, it was in traditional direct authoritarian stuff. So pretty much by the end of my of the course, I was equipped with a number of in, inductions and two scripts. Yeah. yeah. And I remember one saying to the guy who trained me, so if, if the first script doesn't work, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and he looked at me like I was stupid. He said, well, use the other one. <laughs> of course. Pretty much that was the extent of my training. And luckily, I got into NLP by that stage. So, you know, timeline and anchoring and I had lots of other tools as well. And, and then I read a, one particular book which completely changed my mind about what hypnosis was. Mm. Because up until then, I suppose I'd, I'd assumed it to be a, a special state. And when you talk about putting people into hypnosis, you know, I, was, I, was, I guess I was one of those. Mm. I even had a, a little meter that you stuck on people's fingers, which told me whether people were going into trance. So I was really caught up in, in the seriousness of, of hypnosis. Yeah. Um, and now I, I think completely the opposite. I think... I think we are in a trance most of the time. Mm. You know, life hypnotizes us. Our brains are altering our states. So really, really, I think with what most people think about as hypnosis, it's just a utilization of the software the brain uses to create the illusion that we call reality. Yeah. So that what we experience on the outside is really just a projection created by our brain to help us make the safest choices. And the way that it does that is use what we call trance phenomena. They're mm. the means by which reality is created so i think hypnosis for me is just a word for when someone alters the reality of someone specifically using trance phenomena for a particular purpose mm. but the thing is if you watch someone when they're doing their problem they're in a trance you see somebody terrified of a dog 
because they have a dog phobia, they're no longer the, the person they were before they saw the dog or the person they'll be after the dog has disappeared. Yeah. It's a trance. Yeah. So in cognitive hypnotherapy, we, we kind of look at what we're doing as helping them dehypnotize themselves from those moments yes. where their unconscious is taking themselves into an altered state to take over control and do the best possible response with what it perceives to be a threat. Mm. And, and one of the key things is that we're not waking people up to, to reality by, by this dehypnosis. We're just helping them to create a happier illusion. Yes. There, there is no real world or real you to discover, I think. There's just a, a you to choose and a world to choose. Yeah. We yeah. get to our deathbeds and we either go, wow, that was a miserable illusion. <laughs> or we get to our deathbed and go, wow, that was a buzz. Yeah. Completely made it up. What a time I had. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not really one of those people who, who ever worries about about is my client in trance? Because if they're telling me about their problem, then they are. Yeah. And if they can do their problem, then they are. It's my job to figure out how do I utilize how they do their hypnosis in order to help them out of it. Yeah. Makes sense. And so, so how is that? Um, um, how have you arrived at that? You know, to tell us about some of some of your own influences, um, some of the major influences, some of the some of the perhaps some of the books, some of the authors that have stood out for you, um, um, or, or, or some of the teachers that have been influential upon you, and perhaps some of the reasons why. Sure. Um, well, I guess the book that I was mentioning was um, Stephen Walensky, Trances People Live. Mm. It absolutely just flips everything on its head that people arrive with a trance. They, it's not a thing you have to create within the room. And, and so everybody can be hypnotized. It was one of the great gifts to me, really, because instead of worrying, you know, I still get people who come to see me who say, oh, I went to see another hypnotist and they said I couldn't be hypnotized. And I just think that's it seems it seems wrong to me that if people are paying me money, then whether I can help them should depend on their natural skill at going into a trance. Yeah. It's my job to utilize the natural states that, that they're bound to be doing or they wouldn't be having a problem in the first place. So Walensky really began, or, or he was the one who really woke me up to this alternative view of reality. Um, but I, I've got to begin with Milton Erickson, really, because, you know, coming from an LP background, yeah, he's a bit of a god. But what I've got mostly from him is this idea that clients have all the resources they need, that mm. the people who come to see us are not broken and they don't need fixing. They are just not connected to what they need to get themselves out of their problem. But the, the solution is within them. And I think that the job of therapy is in a way to take them from an external locus of control where they're looking for the world to save them to an internal locus of control where they realize that, that they can make the choices that will transform their lives for them. Yeah. So in a way with therapy, I'm looking to make myself redundant as quickly as I can because they'll realize they don't need me, yeah. that I've just got them going again, you know, in a better direction. So um, that's the main thing, apart from the language patterns, obviously, that Eric's is famous for. Yeah. It was just this idea that the, the therapist is not the expert, the client is. Um, so he was one. The second one, for a very different reason, was Gil Boyne. And you can't get two therapists more different in many ways than Erickson. No, absolutely. And I was really lucky because um, I, went on a, um, I went on a masterclass of his. And I was the editor of the Hypnotherapy Journal at the time. So I'd arranged to interview him as well. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was to go there as an NLP person and sit and think, well, if this guy is so the opposite of the continuum of NLP, because he's so direct and authoritarian, yeah. if NLP actually works, I should be able to model everything that he's doing and describe it in NLP terms. Yeah. And found that I could. He was anchoring. He was doing all kinds of different bits and pieces. And, and afterwards, talking to him, he was such an intelligent man. And I was lucky enough that he became a friend and, and a bit of a mentor to me. And, and I realized that as I'm watching him, and I suppose from the NLP training that I'd had with Tad James, um, when, for example, if we're talking about regression, Tad was very big into dissociative regression. So the mm. people looking at their past rather than re-experiencing their past. Yes. And then I was watching Gil Boyne, and he's got clients up on the stage, and they are crying so much that snot is hanging off their <sighs> nose, and he's not letting them wipe. He really believed that people had to be in the emotion to clear the emotion. Right, yes. Which is why his former therapy was called transforming therapy. He's not, he's not destroying a problem. He's transforming it, you know, turning hate to love, for example. And so I sat there and realized that if what I believed was true and what he was doing worked, then what I believed couldn't be true. It just was one of the truths. And so I went looking for this unifying factor 
of what makes his thing work and what makes my thing work. And I realized it was a client that you just have to figure right. out to help each person individually. Yeah. And, and so he gave me that. I mean, he gave me a lot more. He was a wonderful, a wonderful guy. Um, and then the third guy is a, a guy called Ruben Bettino. Yeah. And um, again, I went on a course with him and he taught me so much about, about healing and, and, but more than anything else, just about an attitude to service because there's this man, he's an incredible man. He's a professor of chemistry. He's in his eighties now. He still teaches chemistry. Uh, he had a knee transplant a few years ago. He's still hiking up mountains. Yeah. He's an expert. He's bought, built a two third scale model of the original Wright flyer. Oh, and, wow. and he's a top hypnotherapist, Ericksonian hypnotherapist as well. Yeah. And I was having dinner with him once and I said, how do you manage all of these things? And he looked at me and said, I don't dust, <laughs> and, which is a thing I've used a lot. Yeah. But he's, when he, we brought him over actually to run a, a training for us. And it was just a day of him standing stripped bare of any artifice or ego need, just wanting to share what he learned. And he was so humble that it was just a model for what I want to achieve as a trainer myself, you know, yeah. just to share. Yeah. And, and, you know, his skills, quite apart from all that, you know, his skills are incredible. Again, just you see so many people overcomplicating things. And I hear, I hear therapists talk about how complex their clients are, whereas I believe in a deep, a deep simplicity. If things are getting complex, you miss the simple. And when you watch people like him and Brian Rowett, people who've been going for a lot of years, mm. you see that their therapy hasn't got lots of bells and whistles attached. They've actually... Um, kind of, they've just buffed away everything that's not that's not necessary anymore. So yeah. you get a spare system, and that's again, that's a thing that I I aspire to. Yeah. So if I had to give three, it would be Milton, Gill, and Rubin. I and mean, that, are... yeah, that, I, I'm fascinated by that. I could, you know, I could really explore and discuss that with you um, for, for for hours and hours. Um, um, Trevor, throughout your years of experience, um, tell us what, what has been what has been one of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed? Well, that's difficult, really, because because with with my view of, of what hypnosis is, yeah, you know, if, if we went, we were talking about the traditional view of hypnosis, then I suppose I would have to say something like Darren Brown. Yeah. And what he does is very impressive, and he's a wonderfully schooled, skilled man. And I'm not the least bit um, interested really, in that aspect of stuff. Yeah. I think very often when, when I see therapists who are really into the, the rapid inductions and all the fanciness of the, of the thing, it speaks more of their need for power over the client because of, of the lack of power they feel in themselves. Mm. Whereas with my view of hypnosis being a thing that the client is creating in themselves, um, probably the most impressive application are things that you see clients being able to manifest, the changes that they create. You know, like, um, like seeing seeing a client with post-traumatic stress disorder normalize his response to something in a single session. Yeah. That, for me, is stunning. Or, or having somebody recover 60% of their hair when they've been suffering from alopecia for years in the space of three months just listening to a word-weaving download. Yeah. That's, that's really what impresses me, is the power that the mind has, not just to distort reality on the outside, but actually to create a physical change on the inside. That's that for me is is what stuns me most. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you know, I, I, I'm very, very often in awe of what what clients can do and what they are capable of. I know, I know, with a with a lot of students, for example, when they're when they're starting working with their case studies and and are worried about decisions that they're going to be making and 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 the the the. The, this wide responsibility that they place upon themselves um I, i'm very often wanting to, to encourage them with with just that kind of a notion whereby that actually people are incredibly capable of doing such wondrous and beautiful things mm. for themselves yeah. um I, I love to hear that so if you could go back to, to that time um when you started out in this field, um, Trevor, you know, knowing knowing the stuff that you know now, is there anything you'd do differently? And if so, what? And is there any advice that the person that you are today would give that younger you? And and would you would you mind extending that advice to, to our listeners? No, not at all. Um, it's 
you know, in some respects, you're, what I would love to be able to do is to go back and begin knowing what I know now. Yeah. You just think how much further you'd be. Yeah. But then, of course, you'd miss out on the journey. Of and, course. And I think so much of the journey about getting better as a therapist is about getting better as a, as a you. Mm. That's the, I wouldn't want to miss out on any of that. And I think that if, for example, if, um, um, because everything leads to everything else, if I told myself to leave the police sooner, because pretty much I could have done, I spent three years building a practice up, but a lot of it was a lack of confidence in my ability to leave the police and strike out on my own. Yeah. So it just took me three years to gather up my nerve. So I could say to myself, well, leave after one year, but then I wouldn't have met Bex. And, you know, so much of my success has, has been a result of, of the support that she's given me. Yeah. And also I had the luxury of developing my skills while I'm earning a wage in the police without having to worry about, oh my God, am I going to get enough clients to pay my mortgage mm. and, and support the kids and everything else? So I'm pretty happy with the way that things have gone over the time that they've taken. And, and there's nothing much that I would want to change. So I think the advice that I would, the advice I would give is actually to other people is actually when I look back at is what, what just happened to happen to me was yeah. that you should really just give yourself wholeheartedly to this. If you're, if you have found this and it is your thing and you'll know it if it is, um, Gil used to call it the fire. But if you've discovered the hypnosis fire, you know, that you just know this is what you're here to do. Yeah. Then, then don't muck about. Don't play around the edges of it. Give yourself wholeheartedly and keep working on yourself. You know, be the change that you want to see in your clients. Mm. I think that is fundamental. I, I get people coming on our courses sometimes where you see that 10 months after, you know, they've been on the course for 10 months and they qualify and they've got their piece of paper and they haven't changed a bit because they've come on the course for it as a thing they can do to other people. And I think they've missed a fundamental thing that you have to sit in the chair as a fellow struggler. Mm. You have to have gone through it yourself to, to believe in the possibility of the change that this can create. Mm. And I think if you don't, then clients sniff that out in you, that yes. you know, you're, just, you're just selling a thing, but you're not being the thing. So I would say work on yourself, invest in yourself, um, keep learning. Um, one of the great influences, I, I was very, very lucky in the people who trained me in NLP, um, Tad James and David Shepard. Mm. And they were very, very thorough in the skills base um, uh, that, that they applied to it all. And one of the bits of advice that I remember Tad giving, giving us was to read outside of your field. And I, I found yeah. that so helpful. That's really where where the idea, a lot of the ideas for cognitive hypnotherapy came from because an awful lot of hypnosis books just seem to be going round and round the same old thing. I don't read very much that's new within traditional hypnotherapy. Yeah. And and yet there's so much in social social psychology, in the science of influence, things about how the mind works. So much is going on out there that people don't really drag it in to therapy. And yet anytime I read a book, I'm I'm hunting. I'm hunting for how is this relevant to to how I can help my clients more. And I found them sometimes in the most unlikely of places. So read outside of your field, um, stay humble and and give. It's a it's a thing that Bex and I stumbled across with Quest as we were building, because we were just going to run a training school and give people their diploma like everybody else did at the end, and yet we we grew to really like the people on the course and that they wanted to hang around afterwards. So we started running meetings in pubs and we started putting the kind of effort into supporting our students that I know that you do as well, and, and it was so rewarding and we had this network building. And looking back now, we realized that, that our fundamental attitude was not if we give this, what do we get back, but just give it anyway, because, yeah. you know, it'll come back in some form. And if it doesn't, oh, well, you know, you, you've kind of still done the right thing. Yeah. And, so, and, and, and exactly. You're going to sleep well, knowing that you've served people well. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, that's definitely something um, that, that, that I gleaned from you and the way in which you run um, your your company, you know, it's uh, um, it, it comes across very much when you communicate with people that have graduated from from Quest, for example. I think. Oh, that's lovely to hear because, you know, we do have a lovely spirit within it, and mm. and I I can honestly say I don't know how we do it. You know, we haven't got a master plan of how we create this this loyalty within the within the network and how everybody within the network 
um, has the same kind of giving, well, not everybody, but most people have the same giving spirit. Yeah. It just helps, you know, when people come to see you, if you're just focusing on how can I serve you here rather than how can I capitalize on you, I think the dynamic is much better and people will trust you more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is, I mean, there, there, I really appreciate your, your generosity with, with, with the advice you gave there. And, you know, those of you listening, go re-listen to that little nugget there. Um, um, tell me, Trevor, what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis? I, I, I know you've, you're involved in, in, in some initiative at the moment. Um, would you mind sharing some, some information about that and just telling us your thoughts about um, evidence-based approaches to hypnosis? I would love to. I think that unless hypnotherapy gets its act sorted and starts developing the means by which you can create an evidence base, it's going to be dead. Mm. I think there are people, if you look at the situation in America, where you can barely practice as a therapist now using hypnosis, unless you're a licensed psychotherapist, yeah. they've pretty much taken it, taken it away from hypnotherapists. And the same thing could easily happen here. You know, there are turf wars going on within psychotherapy and they would love to just be able to swallow us up and they will be able to all the time that hypnotherapy cannot define itself all the time that it's um, that different people have different views on what hypnosis is. They can say they can turn around and go, well, it's just a technique. So it needs to be taken off of these people and absorbed within CBT or, or what else is, you know, the current thing. So the only protection is getting an evidence base that says that this particular approach had this particular effect. And so we saw this coming with CBT has been very, very clever, very astute in its, in its marketing of itself. And it did so primarily through creating some evidence that it could take to politicians to say, look, we can prove we work to this extent. And it not, might not be a fantastic extent, but it's better than anybody else can prove. Yeah. And they've got 700 million pounds in public funding. Yeah. We need to do the same thing. and There's nothing to stop us, mm. but you go to, Get ten people in a ten hypnotherapists in a room who've been trained by different people and say what is hypnosis and they'll give you a different response. Yeah, uh, and that's what keeps us separate. So four years ago, seeing this, believing that this was coming, um, within Quest we began a um, a research project where we took on the IAPT measures that are used within the NHS, the NHS to measure the effectiveness of the therapies provided by them, like CBT. Yeah. So things like GAD seven. Um, PHQ-9, Schwemmwebs, and we began a project where we assessed clients using these outcome measures for anxiety and depression. And we just had the results published in the Mental, the Mental Health Review Journal. And it showed, there's only a pilot study, so because the data set was about 100 and something people. Yeah. Um, but it showed that 76% of people assess themselves as cured of their anxiety or depression with an average of only six sessions of cognitive therapy. Wow. And that compares to, I think, CBT is about 42%. Yeah. So now we've got another 500 cases um, waiting to be transformed into another study that we can roll out, you know, with a much better data set. It'll be much more compelling. So we're being, we're being gentle about, you know, we don't want to suddenly start waving this big flag saying, look at us, we can prove how great we are. It's a pilot study. But it is a beginning and it's very helpful because um, a little while ago uh, I was in I was caught up in in the kids company mail on Sunday thing because I worked for kids company for about three years um, seeing uh, their staff and also some of the adult kids um, who've been been with them for some some while. Yeah. And of course, when when kids go blew up in the way that it did, um, there was a bit of a media frenzy going on and the mail on Sunday were very keen to make it personal about Camilla, etc. And so I appeared as an article, and it, it was it was cognitive hypnotherapist in inverted commas, and um, weird methods used by this bloke. And it was just a you know it was just a I was just being used as a stick really to beat Camilla with. And kids, yeah. can you believe how ridiculous they were to employ this man? And one of the great things that we had available by then was I could write to the, the Mail on Sunday with this piece of published evidence to say, you know this thing you put bunny ears around? Well, read this. Yeah. And ended up publishing an apology, taking the, the bunny ears off, rewriting pretty much the whole article. So in the end, it pretty much said, kids' company employed this, this hypnotherapist. Yeah. And that wouldn't have been possible without some research to back it up. Yeah. And we are very vulnerable. So anytime the press want to run a negative story, 
They can do because we haven't got any evidence to say, don't do this to us. Look, here's the proof. Yeah. And, and we've got to keep on batting away at that. So, you know, for now, we transformed our training so that outcome measurement is a fundamental part of every Quest cognitive fitness therapist. They're all doing it. And my dream is that it becomes just a standard thing that as they are taking this data from their clients, they input it into the research project. And that way we figure out what works and what doesn't, what, what techniques actually have the effect we think they have and which ones don't so we can evolve. Yeah. Otherwise, we're just going round and round in circles, just believing in what we're doing without proving the efficacy of what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the long answer. Well, you know, it's 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 music to my ears. Um, and um, you know, what 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 I'll do with this particular um um episode is we'll we'll see if we can put a put a link to to some of the some of the results of some of the results published for the public to be able to read. That would be great because, yeah. you know, this is the thing. How do we get better? One of the things about staying humble with this is the fact that I never try, I never lose track of the fact that in a hundred years' time people are going to laugh at what we're doing today. What we think is cutting edge, they're going to look at us like we look at Freud. Yeah. And, and so we, if we stay humble now about that, it keeps us looking for how do we get better than we were yesterday. And yeah. evidence has got to be the way that we measure it. Otherwise, yeah. well, you, you've been around long enough, haven't you, to see the new fads that come along every now and again. Hell and yeah. this, is, this is the answer to therapy. And everyone goes, on, oh, latest squirrel, and off they go running. Mm. Instead of just... Instead of keep creating new new approaches, we should be assimilating into a core. And evidence is the way to prove what belongs to the core and what should just be allowed to fly off to the periphery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's really put a smile on my face, your your last couple of sentences there um, in particular, really, really very much so. Um, Trevor, tell me, where can people go to learn more about your work, your approach to hypnosis? Um, they can go to our website, which is uh, the Quest Institute. Well, it's questinstitute.co.uk. Yeah. Um, I've written uh, three books on Cockhip. Yeah. As well, which you can get from Amazon. Just put my name into there. Yeah. Um, but and also there is the new member services organisation that we just launched, the QCHPA, the Quest Cognitive Hypnotherapy Practitioner Association, which is a a member services organisation that we're looking to um, where we're looking to secure the brand of the approach which has created this evidence yeah. so that we can safeguard the use the evidence is put to and actually be a body that can knock on the door of NICE and the NHS and say, look, this is who we are, this is what we do. How about you make us available to your patients? Brilliant. So go on those and you'll see, see yeah. what we're doing. And there'll be links to, to all of those sites on uh, this particular episode's page at the Hypnosis Weekly website. Um, Trevor, thank you so much for that initial interview. Um, um, we're going to be back with Trevor um, and, and be discussing and, and lifting the lid a little bit on, on cognitive hypnotherapy and looking a little bit more detail at it in just a few minutes. <music> I really enjoyed that interview. As I said, we'll be back with Trevor for our professional discussion shortly. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. I've got three stories for you all this week. Um, all these three stories feature young people and all of them feature great successful outcomes thanks to hypnotherapy. It's just been the Easter break here. Uh, in the UK, everyone celebrating uh, celebrates this this highly religious occasion by by eating chocolate and giving bunnies a lot of love. And there've been a number of media stories during that period of time about selective eating disorders, of which I'm going to discuss two that are similar to start off with today. Our first story then is entitled "Teen Who Ate Twenty Five Thousand Chicken Nuggets in Fourteen Years Finally Cured." of food addiction. And this is the story about a teenage girl that was obsessed with chicken nuggets since the age of two and has finally beaten her so-called bizarre addiction. Uh, and I'll quote from The Sun directly, Hannah Pound, 16, from Dudley, West Midlands, has scoffed 25,000 of the battered bites over her lifetime, costing mum Michaela more than £5,000. This way that tabloids introduce their stories, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, I find the way they introduce their stories to be just as bizarre as this young lady's addiction, to be quite honest. They frame their story by saying that this eating habit has cost her mum more than £5,000. Yet, 
you know, whatever she ate would have cost that amount over the space of 14 years. You know, it's a bit of a non-issue as far as I'm concerned. It's like them writing about me and my children saying, young Oliver Eason, who ate a varied and healthy and usual diet his entire lifetime, cost his father, Adam, more than £5,000. I digress and I apologise. Anyway, so she has grown up with selective eating disorder after refusing to try new things as a toddler um, and and struggled to stomach even the most basic food, according to uh, to the article. Since the age of two, uh, she stuck to a staple diet of chicken nuggets and chips, um, but, and there's a big happy but, she's finally kicked her habit into touch with the help of a hypnotherapist. And as Hannah got older, the thought of being invited out for meals, for example, started to scare her. Um, um, and she's quoted as saying, it was horrific. I tried to keep it hidden from my friends at school. It was hard to explain it to them and really embarrassing. I would eat the same thing every single day. Breakfast was toast with butter. Lunch was toast. Or sometimes I'd make a peanut butter sandwich. Dinner was always chips and chicken nuggets or occasionally turkey dinosaurs. Um, if I ever was brave enough to go somewhere, I was always checking the menu and if nuggets weren't on the menu I was too embarrassed to go. People stopped inviting me out in the end because they knew I'd always say no but I didn't tell them about my selective eating disorder so they didn't know why. It was very, I was very isolated and alone but my anxiety was too much and I didn't know how to change. Um, so Hannah sought out the assistance of a hypnotherapist which was great and she's quoted as saying straight after my hypnotherapy session I ate a piece of ham I couldn't believe it. I've still got a long way to go, but I've tried new things I've never dreamed of eating before. My life up until now has been on hold because of my eating disorder. Now I feel I can start living properly. Um, And I love to hear this, you know. Um, 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 uh, This is a great story. And there's a very similar story that came out at the same time, entitled Georgie Scotney only ate KFC for three years, was hypnotised, now eats fruit. So the title of the story pretty much tells you the entire story. And this is about Georgie Scotney, who's from Portsmouth, and she developed a selective eating disorder at a very young age also. Sufferers of this disorder have an ability to eat certain foods, and safe foods are often limited to certain food types or specific brands. But when she was little, Georgie would only eat chicken and chips, and eventually it got to the stage where only a certain brand of fried chicken would do. And over the last three years, she's only eaten KFC takeaways with the occasional slice of toast or chocolate bar too. But she had a single one-hour hypnotherapy session with uh, Felix Economakis, uh, a previous guest of ours. Do go and check out his edition, his episode. Um, And she's finally been able to try other foods, including fruit. Um, um, And she said that despite initial doubts, the hypnotherapy session with Felix, um, um, who specialises in this kind of treatment, has changed her life. I warned everyone that I was so headstrong and thought I'd never be able to change, she explained. After the session, everything changed for me instantly. I tried new foods that I wouldn't have dreamed of even going near before. And I actually really enjoyed them. And um, um, not only has she tried fruit, she's even had a fry up for the first time. Woohoo! For about 15 years, I'd always wanted to try full English breakfast. So the day after therapy, I did, and it was amazing. And so I love hearing about this. Um, um, two similar stories there. Um, in previous weeks, I've been having a bit of a whinge during our hypnosis in the news. So I thought we'd we'd do some, some happy news this week. And um, um, finally, then, our third story is one that got me incredibly excited. It's entitled... Harry Styles cures teenagers fear of needles. So, you know, I saw this headline. I leapt into this story with anticipation that perhaps the one and only Harry Styles had decided to bring his pop career to an end and deliver a different kind of happiness to the world instead. No longer working with swooning, screaming teenagers and having it off with female TV presenters, he is instead now using his voice for hypnotherapy. But alas, my illusions were shattered as I read the article further, because this was just not the case. The story title is referring to the fact that the hypnotherapist asked the 15-year-old client with a needle phobia to imagine Harry Styles, and this helped her greatly. It was a resource, and no doubt it helped the therapist to get her article noticed by using his name too. 
Cool. So, a bunch of success stories and no complaints from me this week. Hopefully, you all have smiles on your faces. Links to all these media stories are listed under this week's podcast entry at www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion. I welcome back Trevor Sylvester. When I asked Trevor to please, please come and join me on this podcast, I also asked him if we could discuss his cognitive hypnotherapy approach. From my own experience of Trevor, I knew that we had some fundamental professional differences in stance, but I wanted to learn more about his approach. And what I actually found during this podcast and during our discussions that when we weren't recording is that despite those fundamental differences and the theoretical underpinning of our approaches, we also had a great deal in common, a great deal in common. And that made me very happy indeed. Here is this week's professional discussion with Trevor Sylvester. Enjoy. So I welcome back Trevor Sylvester and uh, Trevor's made some some reference already um, um, within our interview today about cognitive hypnotherapy, an approach that he's pioneered. Um, Trevor, for those people that are not familiar with it, that are tuned in today, can you tell us what, what actually is cognitive hypnotherapy? Right, that should be a very easy question to answer, should <laughs> it? but it's actually not, not as easy as I'd like it to be. We've tried for ages to do a little a little thumbnail sketch of what cognitive is and largely failed. So bear with me. In many, many respects, the way that I see cognitive hypnotherapy, it isn't an approach or a therapy in itself. It's a way of thinking about therapy. Mm. In one of my books, I draw a parallel between cognitive hypnotherapy and a martial art called Jeet Kune Do, which Bruce Lee developed. And his approach to martial arts was to incorporate all martial arts under a single framework. And the key thing with, with which martial art you used at any particular moment was it depended on what opponent you had in front of you. So if you've got somebody without a jacket on, then judo is not the way to go forward because you need to have somebody to grab hold of. And it's the same with cognitive hypnotherapy. It's a philosophy that enables you to, to borrow from any other therapeutic approach, whether it's CBT or Gestalt or whatever, mm. NLP, and listen to the client. And by listening to the information they're giving you to get an understanding of their model of the world, which would lead you to make some therapeutic choices about the direction you're going to go in. So it's based on two questions, pretty much. The first question you're asking yourself when your client is present in response to everything they say to you is, what's that about? Mm. When you figure that what that's about is, then the second question is, how can I use that? And that's where you come to the therapy options. So, for example, if I were to use some NLP expressions, um, if you are looking to be working with a client who doesn't visualize very well and you've picked that up from, from the, the history take, yeah. Then some techniques naturally that you would avoid, which demand visualization. If you've got somebody who's very kinesthetically connected, then there are some techniques which would naturally lend themselves to it. So in, in CogHip, we don't use labels at all, really, to direct our therapy. I could see five people with anxiety disorder in a single day, and each person would probably have a different treatment plan developed by me for them that I might never use again in the rest of my career because it just fits them. I'm very much against one-size-fits-all solutions. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that's made cognitive therapy very popular in that, um, especially along the, the kind of CBT route, there's there's an awful lot of frameworking going on where they they listen to them, they diagnose them, they give them a label, and then they give them a, cro a protocol to follow. Yeah, And they needed to do that because of the way that they were doing their evidence gathering. They were using double-blind randomized studies. So they had to strip out any deviation including the the relationship between therapist and client yeah. which you know i think it, personally i think is crazy um whereas what i want to be able to do is to maximize that interaction by really gaining rapport with the client by working in their model of the world rather than making them join mine mm. and I, that's that's one of the flexibility that gives you is it makes cockhip extremely creative because you're there is no preparation you can do you sit with the client and as Gil used to say, you deal with what emerges. And if something, a choice you make doesn't work, that's okay. Because within the framework, anything that doesn't work is just information about the next thing you could do instead. So it means you never get stuck for where you're going to go with the client. You just keep getting these diversion signs from the client. 
and you keep modifying your approach until you've actually got the key to their their issue. Mm. Fundamental within that is is word weaving, which was my approach to uh, to or my response really to Ericsson because what I found was when you go to NLP trainings and you learn the Milton model, um, you get great at mouth flapping in a vague way. Yeah, but if you really study Ericsson, you realize he was very, very clear about what the intention of his vagueness was. He wasn't just being vague. He was being artfully vague. He knew where he wanted his clients to end up, but he left them the maximum choice to get there. So what I did was take um, take presuppositions and take the rest of the Milton model and fit it within a framework where you could listen to the client and have your suggestions guided entirely by their model of the world. And then to add within that the trance phenomena that would work best for them. Mm-hmm. Now, there was actually no point trying, in my model of the world, if you're working with somebody who in NLP they would call an audio digital, somebody who is very, very dissociated from their physical experience, there's no point, for example, doing hypnotic induction that depends on them being able to feel more relaxed because they simply don't feel. So you tailor every single part of your intervention with a client on the information they're giving you, and they give it to you every moment of of your contact with them. I think Gil, Gil said you get everything you need to know from a client in the first 10 minutes. Mm. I think that's largely true as long as you're skilled enough to listen to what they're actually saying. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the philosophy of Cockhip. Yeah. So, so I mean, how did, how did that come about? I mean, did, did you, did you stumble upon that or did, did that, did was that sort of born out of your, your ongoing experience with your clients in therapy um, that, that gradually became established or was it something that, that just worked and the more you applied it, the more it worked and, and so on? Yes, it was. It was a, it was a thing that emerged from my decision to run a training school because then you have to think, well, what do I want to teach? And I just did, I didn't want to just do another clinical hypnotherapy course because there were plenty of those about. And you never know, you can go to 10 different clinical hypnotherapy courses and they're all t- teaching something either slightly or very different to each other. So the clinical means actually means nothing. And so um, I needed to, what I'd learned from being a trainer at Hendon is that you need to reverse engineer your competence to be able to teach it to people. Because when I arrived at Hendon, I'd been a police officer for 10 years and I could point at a crime and go, oh yeah, that's criminal damage or that's theft. And I would be right. But that's no good as a trainer because a student would put their hands and say, well, why is that theft? And I'd go very vague and say, well, it just is. But I'd forgotten how I knew what I knew. I was unconsciously competent. So Cockhip really emerged from me reverse engineering what I did and creating models to explain my process in order for people to be able to follow it themselves. So it kind of emerged from that. And the fact that I'm a bit obsessive compulsive, you know, and I was reading a lot and training with people a lot and you know i just you know i was thinking about it when on my days off i, I was a little bit obsessed yeah yeah well, <laughs> I, I appreciate your candor um <laughs> uh, well, you know it, it it quite clearly is popular you know certainly um, um uh, you know i speak to to many many therapists out there who who really have a warmth and a love for this approach um, um you know you, you sort of alluded a couple of times as to reasons you think it's become so popular um, um is there is there a kind of central a central reason that you think you know people are, 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 do relate to it so well i think um i think the creativity and flexibility that it um that it requires is attractive to a lot of people who don't want to go down the the book of scripts route to therapy i think the people yeah. recognize that actually to help people you've got to be You've got to really put the effort in to get freaking good at this. Yeah. If you're not prepared to put that effort in, then step aside because it's a privilege for people to open their heads to you. And I think it's incumbent upon us to become as good as we can be to to honour honour their courage. So we, you know, I would say, cog hip is probably one of the most challenging things that you could you could seek to learn within the field. And I want it to be that way because because excellence at anything takes effort, doesn't it? Yeah, quite right. So I, I think that appeals. And also the fact that nothing I'm teaching is true. Everything is just a model. And so in my book, I talk about how I want cognitive hypnotherapy to be a permanent revolution. The mm. minute somebody says this is cognitive hypnotherapy, then we've suddenly put walls up around it and it will turn to concrete. And so many other approaches become dogmas and almost become religions. So there's, there's no development. And so 
we've got to keep on recognizing that all we're doing is the best we can today and be open to the next thing that's going to come along tomorrow. So, for example, if anybody ever came up to me and said, so this new technique that has been developed and it works, how does that fit within this model of cognitive therapy? And if I, if I couldn't see how it fits within the model, then what we've got to do is change the model. Mm. That's, that's the revolution. We can't ever say, oh, well, we'll do cognitive therapy and this new technique. The ands shouldn't exist for right. cognitive therapy. True, everything fits within it. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. So, so there's no there's no sort of central standardized protocols that are rigidly set in place. No, there's just a framework. There's an idea that information your client gives you uh, can be divided, can be fitted into one of four quadrants. That the information is either about context, which mm -hmm. is why they do what they do and when they do it. Then there's structure, which is the trance phenomena they use to create the illusion of their problem. Um, and the submodalities, the NLP term, the submodalities for the way they create their feelings, mm. their images about it. Then there's the process of them doing it because all processes exist across time. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we developed a thing called the matrix model to map that. And then there's the consequence, what people see ahead of them that requires an action or what their brain sees ahead of them is, that requires an action that causes them to be hijacked by their unconscious to behave in a certain way. Mm. So that's, that's a model that we follow. And every intervention that we use from timeline regression to drop through to spinning to anchoring fits in one or other of those quadrants. So any bit of information that your client gives you in answers the question, what's that about? That's a structure thing or a context thing. Oh, well, in that case, I might use a context intervention on that particular bit of information they've just given me. Does that, that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Um, um, and it's fascinating. And, and you've made it an inherent part of the approach now as well to, to have outcome measures in place. Yeah, well, it's um, for two reasons. One, and it's a funny thing, actually, because um, the outcome measure that we're using, what has been shown from research is that if you involve the client in measuring the success of the therapy, they actually get better more often. They're just then giving feedback and I think it's because they are empowered by it. They're not the passive subject of a therapy. They're actually somebody who is who is engaged and involved in it, which you know, I mm. think is, is what we're all about. Mm. I don't want somebody laying back and them saying, fix me. I want them involved in this journey together where we explore the way their mind is working. So for that reason alone, we should be doing outcome measures because by them doing it, they get better more often. But then also, one of the great things is that by them doing these outcome measures, Two of them measure anxiety and depression, and the third one is their wellness. So within cognitive hypnotherapy, we talk about their problem state and their solution state. Yeah. And we are both. We are both solution-focused and problem-focused, whereas I think another problem within therapy is people have tended to put themselves two legs good, four legs bad in one or other of the schools, and I don't see why we should limit ourselves. So clients are able to see for themselves. It's tremendously powerful for them to go, well, you know, I really don't think I'm feeling any better. And you show them a graph of their improvement over the previous couple of weeks. And it's a great convincer to them that... Absolutely. Because so often, if the work is, is succeeding in the way that it should, they don't even notice they're better because they're still just themselves. So why, why wouldn't they be feeling like they are? And they very quickly forget how they used to feel. So to have a, have a, a kind of a journal of their improvement is a great way of them realizing that what is what is happening to them is working. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. The, 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 there's an element of, you know, one of my favourite, one of my favourite things in the world is um, um, self, self-efficacy development, where mm -hmm. people, people become more confident in their ability to do things and then their ability is actualised um, um, yes. as far as their development is concerned when their belief becomes uh, um, invested in it. So the, the, the outcomes... Um, begin to improve themselves as well and and there's a there's a similar theme there that people begin to to recognize and and you know, begin to, to 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 realize more of what's happening and thus the results are actualized in turn absolutely you know one of the things i I've, I've been doing therapy for i don't know something like 20 years now and what i remember gil Boyne once saying that the universal neurosis that all of his clients suffer from mm. which all clients suffer from is a belief that they're not loved or lovable and and i hate universal labels so i push that aside for a long long time yeah 
And do you know, the longer I go, the more I think he's right, that all problems stem from your relationship to yourself. And if you've got a poor relationship to yourself, your mind will find lots of ways out in the world, plenty of places to hang that problem on, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your career. So everything really is about how much do you like being you? So I think for me, one of the major themes of my therapy is that the goal is just to have the most fun you can have simply by being yourself. Yeah. I think that's true. That's one of the great privileges of being a therapist. And again, I remember Gil, Gil saying this about how he would watch himself on, in one of his training videos in front of class, and he really liked who he was on screen. And he had the thought of, I'd like to be that person more often when I'm not doing therapy. And he recognized, you know, as, as he kind of opened my eyes as well, that the great privilege of being a therapist is that it's also self-improvement for you. And that's a byproduct. It's not the purpose of being a therapist. But if you do engage in therapy successfully with your client, where you're just giving to them and, and you're there to serve, then you leave your ego at the door. And hopefully you forget to pick it up again once you, once you leave it. And I think it improves you as a person. So in the nature of helping them with their relationship to themselves, you help, help with your relationship to you. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, 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 wh what do you think are some of the, 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 the sort of biggest distinctions between cognitive hypnotherapy and a lot of the sort of clinical hypnotherapy that you referred to earlier that, 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 that is just sort of talked and, and almost verbatim regurgitated out there in the field? I think, um, I think one of the big difference is our uncertainty, that we are never sure that we're right. And mm. so... There is never one set solution to anything. Whereas, you know, I've been at conferences where people come up and say, oh, what's your script for, for smoking cessation? You know, this kind of swap off meat for the they're searching for the perfect, the perfect script. Yeah. And the perfect script exists from, it comes from the mouth of your client. If you only know to ask them the right questions, they tell you what they need to hear to quit smoking. And then you mm -hmm. turn, you know, you drop that into the word weaving um, framework and, and give it back to them and they don't even notice that that's, that's what you've done. And so the idea that there is one thing that will fix, that will fix one thing, I, I think is completely yeah. wrong. So that's a major, major difference between us, I think. The, the idea that trance is a special state, that you put people into hypnosis, um, I don't think that either. I think people put themselves into hypnosis and they do it whenever they have a problem and my job is to help them wake themselves up at the moment they lose control. And, yeah. and also that they get too hung up about the, the deeper, the better. The depth of trance is somehow irrelevant. Mm. And, and one of the things I mentioned earlier about this box that I used to plug people into, and it was a bit like, the, like a lie detector, you know, where it measures the electrical response in the skin. And so we would come up with a number, and I think the number was something like 50, which was average alertness. And then the idea was that as I was doing an induction and a deepener, that people would go into a deeper and deeper state and the number would go down. And the funny thing was that sometimes people, the number went up and yet they still seemed in exactly the same kind of state as the people who went down, that they could go into trance just as well from getting tense as from getting relaxed. So whenever I read hypnosis as a state of relaxation, it gives me the eebie-jeebies because watch somebody having an anxiety attack. For me, that is a trance. They are, they are hypnotized and there's no way they're relaxed. So that's another difference, I would yeah. say. Yeah. That, the state is not the key thing in trance. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the thing that's happening while we're in it that matters. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I'm fascinated with this and, and again, could carry on. Um, I'm asking you and asking you, but you know, we're, we're, we're running out of time. Um, um, if people want to learn about um, um, the cognitive hypnotherapy approach, then please visit the questinstitute.co.uk. Uh, uh, the, 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 there'll be a permanent link on this particular episode of uh, the Hypnosis Weekly website. Um, really, all that remains for me to say is thank you, Trevor Sylvester, uh, for joining us on Hypnosis Weekly. You are very welcome. I've loved it. Thank you very much for asking me. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Thanks to Trevor once again. Some fascinating information there. There is a link to the personal website of Trevor Sylvester and to the Quest Institute over at this episode's page on the Hypnosis Weekly website. So this week, back on to our evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. 
In a study conducted by Lang and colleagues back in the year 2000, hypnosis was found to reduce stress and pain better than the control groups during surgery. The control groups were standard care and structured attention. Um, And this impressive study met with strict criteria set by Chambliss and Holland with regards to study design in order to be considered an empirically supported treatment. And the study featured in The Lancet, one of the most prestigious journals in the world. Hypnosis rarely features in that journal. And there's a link to that study that will be on this episode page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. And that's that hypnosis was found to reduce distress and pain better than control groups during surgery. Um, You'll notice at the top end of that, I said in a study conducted by Lang and colleagues in the year 2000. I find it difficult to say in the year 2000 and not start singing that particular pulp song in my head. I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat all the references made in the discussions, along with the related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next time out, I welcome Barry Thane as my guest, and you have to believe me when I say that you will not want to miss that episode. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website, and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks again to Trevor Sylvester. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now.